Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to see Mrs. Fred. <laughs> Went to church with her and her husband when I was a kid, and her husband was my seventh grade homeroom teacher, so always good to see her again. I don't want to spend too much on me. Let's get right to the Word of God. Uh, if you'll open up with me to Genesis chapter 19. I uh, entered Frontier School of the Bible uh, in Wyoming uh, the spring of 2003 and uh, was put into a dorm room with three other guys, so kind of small dorm room with two bunk beds, and uh, so you get to know those guys pretty well. Uh, one of the guys was named Justin. He was a year and a half ahead of me uh, in school, uh, and I remember probably a week or two after I got there, we were heading to lunch, and he pulled me aside and uh, asked me, so I want to just to know how serious you are about what you're doing here. I assured him that I was certainly called to Bible school, and uh, I could be as serious as you can be as a freshman, and, uh, and he was, okay, all right, all right. And Justin went on to graduate. Um, he left. We didn't keep in touch too much, uh, only social media, I guess. But now as I uh, found him recently on Facebook, he is, uh, by his own description, uh, a former minister, a devout atheist, part of a Unitarian society. And the question, I guess, arises for me and it arises for all of us, what happened? What, you know, and the, the only God can truly answer that fully. We can truly make assumptions that though Justin's brain was engaged with the Bible and all things Christian, having even grown up in a Christian home, I know he was, uh, his heart's loyalty, his heart's affections weren't for the kingdom of Christ. He never found that satisfaction that we all need and that we just sang about. So before we get to Genesis 19, will you please pray with me once again? My Father, I thank you for our time here this morning. I thank you for the mercy you extend to us that we can even speak your name. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your revelation of who you are. And that by that revelation we see the depths of our sin. God, I pray this morning as we are in the middle of a week, many in a busy schedule, will you calm our hearts? Will you focus our minds? I stand on your promise that this word will go forth and do what you have called it to do. You are our greatest teacher. I pray that you do so this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 19, starting in verse 23. I trust you understand the context of this, these verses and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the saving of Lot for the sake of Abraham. It says in verse 23, I'm reading from the ESV, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley 
and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. It says, because of the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah had come before the Lord and their sin was so great, God righteously judged them by destroying them with sulfur and fire. But God in his mercy saved Lot and saved his wife and saved his two unmarried daughters. But then we see Lot's wife's reaction. Did she worship the Lord? Did she praise the Lord for his mercy? Did she thank him for uh, his great salvation? No. And it's because her heart was still in Sodom. Her affections were still in Sodom. You see, she didn't just simply glance back to see what was happening. She considered it. She beheld it. She grieved its loss. And knowing that she hated for those cities to be destroyed, we can only know that in her heart a resentment was in her heart to the God who is responsible for that destruction. And we see here that her end came just as quickly as Sodom's end. She became a pillar and it stood as a constant reminder to those around and even to us today who read these accounts to be careful where you place the treasures of your heart. Much of the world, though, is deaf to this message. And as we look at the other end of this book, we read about two different kingdoms. So from Genesis 19, let's turn now to Revelation 18. And Revelation has given us a clear showing of two kingdoms. He calls one the kingdom of man and he calls the other the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of God. Both of these kingdoms are promising to us satisfaction. We see in Revelation 18, though, in what he calls Babylon, this great society, uh, this secular kingdom of pleasure and ease, this antichrist regime has been seen all throughout history. And here in Revelation 18, we see the culmination of all of those uh, kingdoms coming into this one kingdom, this worldwide government, this worldwide society, this wickedness and immorality. And we get the picture. God gives us this revelation of the end of secular society. It says in Revelation 18, Starting in verse 4, and if you picture Lot's wife in this, you, can, you see the connection. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. 
For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. In the last days, God says, I will once and for all destroy Babylon, this kingdom of man. He will bring about the promised plagues, the plagues that we saw in Egypt in Exodus, just just a foretelling of what this great destruction is coming in the end. They're going to cry out against God as they see their beloved, their beloved city burning and the smoke arising. They're going to mourn over the death of their first love. And in the end, they will come to the same destruction. As we see two chapters later in Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 12. And in Revelation 20, 12, it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So we sit here this morning and as we study the Bible and we study God's word, we're aware of these two contrasting kingdoms. As I said, they're both offering promises of satisfaction, promises of happiness, promises of ease and peace. But like the false prophet spoken of in the book of Jude, Babylon is simply waterless clouds. They speak a great game. They have great words. They can tell you all that you want to hear, but they have no power to fulfill it. They can't do it. They can't bring to you what you ultimately need. Babylon will allure us. It it drags our flesh towards it by, by the great prostitute who's dressed in purples and scarlets and ordained in golden jewelry. The lust of our eyes sees this prostitute and and is attracted to it. The promises of Babylon convinces us that if we are loyal to Babylon, we will find great wealth, recreation, marriage, family, popularity, awards, all these things that will satisfy us, supposedly. That all you're longing for can be met with either hard work or just good luck. Full of enticement or luring and promises and yet absolutely unable to deliver. For those who love Babylon, they will not find happiness. They will not find rest. They will not find peace. And they will certainly not find satisfaction. But the smoke 
as it says in Revelation, of their torment will rise forever and ever. And they will have no rest day and night. But, praise the Lord, there is another kingdom. A kingdom ruled by a slain lamb. A kingdom ruled by the Lion of Judah. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, it gives us this great promise, this great moment, this time coming in the near future in what we call the day of the Lord. He says in Revelation eleven fifteen, which I find is one of the key verses in Revelation, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. He will reign forever. This is the kingdom that was promised to Abraham. This is the fulfillment of the nation of Israel. This is the glorified church. This is the people united in their king, the Lord Jesus, who by his great power and his wondrous love for us gave himself up for his people that we might be reconciled to God. We're not going to go there, but in Romans chapter 14, Jesus' kingdom is defined as a kingdom of righteousness. That word righteousness simply means straightness. To trespass or trespasses, as we often call sin, means to deviate from a straight path. God's character and his attributes are altogether holy and altogether perfect and good. He is that standard of straightness, that standard of righteousness. And yet because of the sin that we were born into, it's not that we're simply just unrighteous. We actually despise it. We don't don't know what is truly good. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 3 that we won't even seek after God. The law of Moses showed us righteousness, and yet it was unable to save us from our sin. So God came to earth. I love that Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. It goes on to show how we were so... seeped into sin and and rebellion, and then it says, but God... (laughs) rich in mercy, abounding in love, made us who were dead in, Christ, or dead in sin alive in Christ. And not just resurrecting us, but then bringing us into the heavens with Him to sit with Him at the right hand of God. This is the kingdom that He's building. Jesus came to earth in the flesh to fulfill the righteousness that we couldn't, to fulfill righteousness for a rebellious world. For what was impossible with us, Jesus was able. Amen. So we see him early on come to John the Baptist and say, I need to be baptized. And John the Baptist says, who am I to baptize you? (laughs) Should be the other way around. And Jesus says, this needs to be done to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. He came not to abolish the law, 
He didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law of righteousness. All of its requirements, all of its standards, he lived in that perfect obedience, walking that straight road. He didn't deviate once. He was unwavering, unshakable. All because we were unable to do so. And quite honestly, we were even unwilling to try. In that straight road of righteousness that Jesus walked, led him to a cross. And he was crucified on a cross. This cross of Calvary, he became sin on our behalf so that we could become what? His righteousness. That's right. So the question then arises, so what does righteousness have to do with satisfaction? Short answer, everything. But I'll give you the long answer. (laughs) Matthew chapter 5. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Starting in, in verse 2. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2 says, And he opened his mouth, and Jesus taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These are the blessings for those who are poor in spirit. Those who have come to the realization that their love and that their affections, that their loyalties, that their desires were all for Babylon. And that this love they had for the secular society and all of their false promises and all their alluring and all of the sin brought upon them the very wrath of Almighty God. And ultimately, they know would lead to their destruction. This love for Babylon brings them to a point where they mourn and they cry out for a savior. This realization that Babylon doesn't satisfy. That earthly pursuits always, always come up empty. And a loyalty to the world's system brings eternal death. And that realization of all those things shatters our pride. And we become ultimately dependent upon Christ, our Savior. And then comes that hunger. The hunger. In verse 6. Blessed, happy are you guys who hunger for righteousness. Who thirst for righteousness. For you will be satisfied. You see, even as we come to Christ, we still have desires. It's only human to have longings, to have needs. But now, instead of wealth and lust and power and and fun and, and games, now it's righteousness. And Jesus says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. It's not just simply saying... If you hunger for righteousness, he gives you righteousness, which is absolutely true. 
but that when you hunger for righteousness and he gives it to you, all of your heart, your very core of your being, all of you finds absolute and complete satisfaction. That you are filled. That's what satisfied means, that you are filled. You're full. You're at rest. That's why Jesus spoke of bread that will erase your hunger forever. That's why he spoke of living water that eternally quenches the thirsty. That's why he spoke of the kingdom of God like a treasure hidden in a field. And when you find it, you sell everything you have to purchase that field and get that treasure. Why? Because when we find that which cures that internal deep longing in us, we will readily and quickly sell all this other cheap junk we thought would do that for us once (laughs) to gain the kingdom. I mean, isn't that the testimony of the Apostle Paul? He said it in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul sold all he had to buy the field because he found the treasure that satisfies. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Here it is again, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Oh, the righteousness that we gain through faith by the amazing grace of God. This righteousness without which we will never see God. This righteousness that is only found through the Lord Jesus. So what is then the relationship between satisfaction and righteousness? They're one and the same. You can't separate the two. You cannot find satisfaction apart from the righteousness of Jesus and you will never find the righteousness of Jesus without being ultimately and completely satisfied. That is why Jonathan Edwards was quoted as saying, the seeking of the kingdom of God is the chief business of the Christian life. Jesus told us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. For then we will ultimately be satisfied. The Apostle Paul, under the Spirit's inspiration, said, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I'm not going to stand here this morning and just assume All of you have placed your love and your loyalty and your desires in the kingdom of Christ. 
my personal experience won't let me do that. So this morning I want to implore you, consider Jesus, as Hebrews says. Evaluate where your affections lie. What are you leaning on for satisfaction? Are you chasing marriage to fill the void in your soul? Because Bible school has that reputation. (laughs) Are you chasing degrees, thinking that's going to leave you satisfied? Even just simply chasing the goal of ministry, thinking that a life of service to the Lord is reasonable enough just for satisfaction. I guarantee you, I guarantee you that without righteousness, all of those things will fail. All of them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Hunger for it. Pray that your cravings for obedience and for holiness will increase. And the Lord said it, not me. You will be satisfied. You pray with me. Father, we rest in the person and work of your Son. If it wasn't for him, I would be dead in my sin. I know I'd be chasing after futile things. My soul would be in constant turmoil, my spirit dead. And I would never, ever know satisfaction. God, as each one of us here sit here this morning, I pray that their end will be Christ's end to live forever and ever in this kingdom of righteousness and joy and peace. For there's only two kingdoms we can live in and the other ends in destruction. Oh God, cause us to repent of the things we've been chasing that will never, ever lead to joy, never lead to holiness or satisfaction. That we may boast in Christ and Him crucified. That our hearts will erupt in praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And that we too can find such satisfaction in Jesus that we truly mean the songs we sing, that no matter what may come, it is well with my soul. Lord, bring each person here to that point. Change their minds, change their hearts to chase after you and your kingdom and your righteousness. In your name, amen.